How good was that, huh? So good, you guys. Awesome, love you. Thanks so much. Woo! Bless you guys. So fun partnering with them. Uh, like, here's what's happening in heaven. I think, I think the Lord on his throne in heaven sort of leans down to the angels and Peter and all the loved ones that have gone before us up there, and, and he just like makes a little Sunday morning announcement and says, hey, everybody, the Teen Challenge Choir singing at Horizon this morning, and all of heaven goes, oh, goody, let's, and they're just all listening in, and the Lord is blessed, and they're just making a joyful noise. They're just like, it's your breath in our lungs. These guys are set free, whom the sun sets free. Come on, is free indeed. Sure, so good, right? Woo! Lot to get to this morning. Glad you're here for it. We're in an overview of the Bible series this summer, now going into part seven, going to wrap it up together next weekend on the backfield. I was thinking this to myself, who would I have come and sing at Horizon before Brandon Lake comes? Like, he's like the most in-demand worship leader right now on the planet. Seriously, not exaggerating. He's it, and he's coming here next weekend. Who would we have precede him? I know. Let's have the Teen Challenge Men's Choir. Let's have them come before Brandon Lake. Yeah. So you know what they'll be saying all week? We opened for Brandon Lake. <laughs> so good. If you need a Bible, our ushers are here in the aisles. If you need an outline, grab a pen. Got a lot to cover in this, in this series that has just been so good, just soaking it in. We've looked at, well, this will be the seventh segment of time or historical period in which God moves in a very unique way. We looked at the garden. That was a unique way of operation in which God interacted with his creation. And then there was the fall, and it changed everything. So you have uh, 1G, everything awesome, everything great, Garden of Eden. You have 2G, you have interference. You now have two competing signals overlapping each other into the, into the ears and mind and, and heart of, of, of mankind, and they fell. Then there was the law, 3G, the law, the Old Testament, from Abraham to Malachi, a 3G period in which God specifically interacted through the law. 4G, God supernaturally comes in the form of a, of a, of a bodily person that we could now see God, we could we could, we could hear him, we could, we could interact, we could, we could follow. God puts skin on and appears in the form of Jesus Christ, a baby born in a manger, earthly ministry, 4G, the Gospels, 4G, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And then he ascends back to heaven, and he's like, no, 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 guys, don't be sad, it's good that I'm going. And they're like, no, no, they're trying like, hold on, you know, to the hem of his garment. Don't leave. He's like, no, it's great that I leave because I've been limited here. If I'm in Jerusalem, I can't be in Galilee, and my spirit is going to come. 5G. 
This, this unique period in history of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, of the age of the church, of the miracle gift of God's Word, the Bible. So we looked at that together. And all of that then flows into a period known as the Great Tribulation. 6G, 6, the number of man, the Antichrist. It's where we left off last weekend. And I hope that last weekend is the closest you ever get to the Great Tribulation. That was it. And now the Great Tribulation is interrupted by a new period of time, a, a new sequence that we're calling seven, perfect number, the number of completion, 7G, the millennium, the millennium. It is the earthly reign and kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ here on earth, not in heaven yet, here on earth, a period of a thousand years. So we're picking up at the tail end of the great tribulation. Following the tribulation is now, this is new for some of you, okay? So now there's this interim period of history between the end of life as we know it here on earth and the eternity then that awaits for us in heaven, 8G, heaven, next weekend, backfield, celebrate communion, going to wrap the whole thing up. But there's a lot going on that has yet to be fulfilled here on earth that happens during this period known as the millennium. So turn with me to Isaiah chapter 11, Isaiah chapter 11, there's a lot of Old Testament prophecies, I won't get to all of them, but we'll look at some of them today, that are pointing towards the millennium. Pointing towards the millennium. A lot of people might misunderstand it and think, well, that's actually pointing to heaven. Not heaven yet, but things actually that will be fulfilled and will take place here on earth. And Isaiah 11 is devoting itself exactly to that period in history. Look at verse 1. You got it? Say, got it? And there shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse. The branch shall grow out of its roots, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge. These aren't different. This is one Spirit with a, with a lot of different attributes. Uh, grab your outline. Let's just fill this in. Uh, there's a sevenfold characteristic of the Holy Spirit that I just want you to pull with me right off the pages of Scripture and, and be reminded of. We're talking about, first of all, the Spirit of the Lord. That's important because here on earth there's a lot of different spirits. So the Bible says test the spirits. Here we're talking about the Spirit of the Lord. Answers on the screen. We're talking about the Spirit of the Lord who is also the Spirit of wisdom. Spirit of wisdom. Thirdly, what's it say? The Spirit of understanding. Spirit of understanding. That the Spirit wants to lead and guide and, and, and bring into the reality of our mind and heart and lives an understanding of what he's up to. Because his ways are not our way. It's like, you know, I saw those uh, amazing Thursday night at the beach, these like 
50 some odd folks getting baptized. That, and that, that is the, the intersection of, of you and I no longer leaning on our understanding, but now trusting in the Lord and his plans for our lives. And they just, they just jumped in. They said, I'm all in. I'm all in. And there's a, a spirit of understanding that we need in these days here at the end of the age, because things are crazy. I mean, there is such a strong move of big government right now. Has anyone noticed? There's such a strong move right now of big tech right now. Has anyone noticed? Big government and big tech. Listen to me. Big government and big tech both need to be confronted by a big gospel, by a big Jesus, a Jesus that's bigger than all rivals combined. And what we need in order to see that fulfilled and accomplished is a biblical worldview. That's why we've devoted this summer to this overview of the Bible, of just having for ourselves, not just tucked away back on some shelf somewhere, but like on the front burner of our heart and our mind, this realization that Jesus wins. And he's not only going to return, he's going to return so he can reign. And the only ticket that gets you into that magic kingdom is the Holy Spirit. The Spirit, put that back up there, guys. The Spirit of the Lord. The Spirit of wisdom. The Spirit of understanding. And maybe, maybe the clarification of what I just said to you right there has brought some understanding into your mind. Listen, ultimately, it'll be Jesus who runs the United Nations. Ultimately, it'll be Jesus that runs the United States of America. Ultimately, it'll be Jesus that runs Russia. Ultimately, it'll be Jesus that runs China. Ultimately, Jesus sets up his authority and kingdom and does so in Jerusalem, which makes Israel the world's superpower. That's all going to go down, and you're like, I have never understood this before. Glad you're here. That it wouldn't be me, but the Spirit of the Lord giving wisdom and understanding and counsel and power and, and, and knowledge and, and, a, and a reverent fear. That, that end is actually spoken of twice, the Spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord, a, a reverence. I mean, a, a, a reverence, you guys, for how our time is spent a reverence, North County, listen, a reverence that he takes preeminence over what we want to do. A reverence, a godly fear of putting him first in your finances. A godly reverence, because some of you think tithing is supporting a Christian company that feeds the hungry called Chick-fil-A. There's more to it than that. A reverence an honoring of the Lord with your time and your talents and your priorities. In fact, that's the one that repeats itself in verse 3. His delight is in the fear of the Lord, and he shall not judge. Look at this. Look at verse 3. Are you tracking? Are you with me? Yes. Did you get all seven of those? Because yes. you need those. Listen, if you've invited the Holy Spirit into your life, if you've had this Pentecost experience of allowing the Holy Spirit to be poured into you, then he has come in a sevenfold way, in a sevenfold manner of, of qualities and attributes. And you are fully depending upon him. You're desiring to please him. And the meaning and purpose of your daily existence is to put 
Him first. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. That's what these guys are singing about at the top of their lungs. That he is, he's, he's set them free whom the Son sets free in a, a wisdom that comes from above. Not your IQ, not your degree, not your earthly talents and abilities. A spirit of wisdom and understanding. This is the only thing that brings you into a place of now being able to enjoy and experience that which awaits the millennial reign of Christ here on earth and his kingdom of heaven to follow. You don't want to miss out on any of this. It comes through reverence, the, the, the fear of the Lord. His delight is in the fear of the Lord. And then it says this. This is fascinating. And he shall not judge by the sight of his eyes. Did you see that? Look at that verse. He shall not judge by the sight of his eyes. So like, just stop for a second and ask yourself, how many times do you actually judge things based on perception? Because it really isn't, let's be honest, it really isn't what's happening as much as it's what I see that's happening. And the way I see what's happening is typically the way I judge. God doesn't judge that way. He's not going to judge based upon what he sees. Nor is he going to judge or decide by the hearing of the ears. Oh, did you hear? Oh, I was in the church courtyard and I heard someone say this. Oh, really? I didn't. He ain't going to judge that way. He ain't going to judge the way we judge. How's he going to judge? Not by what he sees and not by what he hears, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor, decide the equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall slay the wicked and righteousness shall be the belt of his loins and faithfulness the belt of his waist. He is going to reign and rule here on earth. Not just return, but he's going to return to reign and rule. And check this out. Look at verse 6. And the wolf also shall dwell with the lamb. What? And that doesn't mean the wolf's having lamb chops for lunch. It means they're dwelling together. They're pals. They're bros. They're getting along. The wolf has received a new nature. It ain't the old wolf anymore. To which every single one of these friends of mine singing in the choir today can say, this is the new creation. I was once a wolf. The wolf is now dwelling with the lamb. The leopard is going to lie down with the young goat. What? That didn't happen yet in this world. There's actually a curse on the animal kingdom where this world is concerned. Are you aware of that? The curse is actually given in Genesis chapter 9. Look at this verse. In Genesis chapter 9, hi guys, stick with me in the back. I'm going to move really fast. Here's the curse. You, you, the, the fear of you, the dread of you, going to be on every beast of the earth. Okay? That curse upon every bird, on every beast, everything moving, all the fish of the sea, that curse is going to be lifted. And the lion's going to lay down with the lamb. And the leopard here isn't going to be the leopard of the old age. That curse 
that was placed upon the animal kingdom is lifted. The best way I could describe it for you is simply this. That verse is promising to us that the curses of sin in this world are now lifted and removed when we get to this period known as the millennium. I, I, the best way you could it's Garden of Eden 2.0. It is now for a thousand years celebrated, experienced, and enjoyed the way it was always meant to be experienced. And, 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 and the calf and the young lion and, 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 and the fatling together, hanging out, chilling, leopard with the goat, wolf with the lamb, and a little child shall lead them. Now, a lot of people will take that verse out of context and think, well, that's referring to Jesus. He came as a little child. If it was referring to Jesus, child would be capitalized. It's referring to kids in the millennium. And a little kid, like my grandkid Bo, is going for a walk with a wolf without his mommy or his grandpappy freaking out. He's going to be riding on the back of a leopard. A little child shall lead them. How crazy is this? Moms, think of that without you freaking out or worrying that a little child will lead the leopard around, lead the wolf around. The cow and the bear shall graze and the young ones will lie down together. The lion will eat straw like an ox. Really? The lion's become a vegetarian. Whole food seems to still be around. I don't know what to tell you. And the nursing child, look at this, verse 8, shall play by the cobra's hole. Like any poisonous threat of harm or death is gone in the millennium. And now your nursing child, little granddaughter, baby Blakely, nursing child, is playing by a cobra's hole. And the weaned child shall put his hand in the viper's den. We went for a walk at Cardiff the other night. This is like this Cardiff beach walk that's just to the east of the railroad tracks. You know what I'm talking about? You know what I'm talking about. A lot of you say hi to me when I'm down there. We're walking down there, and it got a little, little too dark on us. And all of a sudden, across the walkway was this snake. I'm telling you, it was like five feet long, just sort of like spread out, enjoying the warmth of the concrete. And Bond didn't see it. Bond didn't see it. She's just sort of like, do-do-do-do-do. And I'm like, hey, snake. And she's like, ah, I saved her life right there. <laughs> saved her life. And here in the millennium, her adrenaline would not have shot through the roof because now you have all of those threats behind you. They have been put away and they shall not hurt or destroy in all of my holy mountain for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord. What will be full? Are we talking heaven? No, for the fourth time now, we're talking earth. On earth, on earth, something's gonna happen. Something's going to be reset, and the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters of the sea. So all that is happening in this period known as the millennium, to which is referred to even more specifically in the book of Revelation. So leave Isaiah with me. Turn to Revelation. Turn to Revelation 19 and 20 with me real quick. Revelation chapter 19 picks up right where we left off last weekend. The culmination of the great tribulation being interrupted by the return of Jesus, the second coming. You have this guy, this antichrist, this number of a man, this number 666, is the way Revelation 13 
concluded, then you have a lot of the judgments and bulls and wraths that are going to be poured down on the planet during that period known as the Great Tribulation. And then chronologically, we pick up the story here in Revelation chapter 19. Look at verse 20. Revelation 19, 20. Then the beast was captured. This all happens as a result of the second coming of Jesus. I, 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 I do. I, I, I agree. They thought Satan was winning in the Great Tribulation. They had Israel surrounded in the Great Tribulation. But here the Lord returns and specifically returns to accomplish this. Verse 20. The beast is captured and with him the false prophet. So there's three members of an unholy trinity and three members of a holy trinity. Holy trinity? Come on. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Unholy Trinity, you have a beast, now captured. You have a false prophet, it's the Antichrist. He's about to be captured with the beast here in verse 20 of chapter 19. So two of the three are being dealt with right here. What happens? The Bible tells us exactly what happens. The false prophet who worked signs in his presence by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. And these two were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone. The rest were killed with the sword which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse. That's the return of Christ. That's us returning with the Lord. That's the second coming. And all those who had signed up to be a part of this rebellious battle to which the unholy trinity is leading were also killed. Killed by Jesus Christ and the sword which proceeded from his mouth, who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. So two of the three have been dealt with. Here's number three. The third member of the unholy trinity, chapter 20, verse 1. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit, and a great chain in his hand. Okay, let me just stop there for a second, because I am absolutely fascinated with one thing. That angel goes unnamed. That is the killer assignment. But I think it puts Satan in perspective. That we don't have to give this assignment to our biggest angel. A lot of us want to think that Satan and the great tribulation and oh my gosh, the beast and the mark of the beast and, 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 and the abomination and, and we're just like making him so much bigger. It's shadow puppets on the wall. He's a worm. And the angel that actually is, is assigned to go down and take care of him is, is not even, he's an intern. He's a rookie. Do we need Michael? Michael's a big archangel. No, if it was Michael, it'd say Michael. We need Gabriel? Do we need these guys who came and told Mary and Joseph, you're actually, you know, going to... No. It's some angel with training wheels. It's, it's the angel who's the key monitor. Do you remember, the key, you remember in fifth grade when you were the key monitor? Okay, who wants to be the key monitor for the restrooms? Oh, I do, teacher, I do, I do. That's this angel. Totally unnamed, but has the key, has the chain, and heads down. Verse 2, lays hold of the dragon. 
that serpent of old who is the devil and Satan and bound him for a thousand years. Cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up. Church, and shut him up. Come on, and shut him up. And set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more. Incidentally, the reason it says that is because up until that point, what was he doing? Deceiving the nations. He will deceive the nations now no more until the thousand years are finished. And after these things, I know one of the craziest sentences in all of Scripture, right? And after these things, right, you with me? He must be released for a little while. You're like, what? Having caught him, why would we ever let him? Go? Okay, it's on the outline. We'll get to it in a moment, I promise. But what happens next, you've got to take very close attention to. Follow with me. Verse 4. And I saw thrones. Everyone say thrones. Okay, we're talking plural. Okay, not all of you said it. Thrones. Saw thrones. And they sat on them. Who's the they? Okay, um, several different options. You have the 24 elders that we're told in Scripture sit on thrones. In the last days, during the kingdom reign and rule of our Lord Jesus Christ, you have 24 elders, you have the apostles. But you know who else we have? In, in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, we're told we are sitting on thrones. The believers, the ones who were raptured, to enjoy a period of hell on earth here, this great tribulation, those that have been raptured out of that hell that meet Jesus in the air, that celebrate the marriage supper of the Lamb, that then return with Jesus at his second coming are going to dwell with him and reign and rule with him. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 2. So that's us sitting on thrones, and judgment was committed to them. We're told that. We will, we will judge the angels. We will rule with Jesus here on earth during the millennium. Then I saw, in other words, here John is adding additional information to what he has already seen. What he's already seen are multiple thrones and people sitting on those thrones. And then in addition to that, he says, then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who would not worship the beast or his image or not receive the mark on their foreheads or on their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. In other words, they are now added to the equation. They are included, they being the martyrs of those who died for their faith during the period of the great tribulation, who weren't believing when the rapture came, but following the rapture, then chose to believe in Jesus and didn't receive the mark and were killed as a result. They're sitting on the thrones as well. So we're all there together. We're all sitting on the thrones together. But the rest of the dead, and this is now verse 5, the rest of the dead is referring to the non-believers those who chose not to believe. The rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. 
This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. Wow. So you have this first resurrection. That's of the believers. That's a, a resurrected life, whether, you have, um, whether you've died here and gone on to be with the Lord uh, the Bible says we will by no means precede them. They, they will rise at the rapture and we will follow them up and a resurrected life is then reunited with a resurrected body. That's the first resurrection. And those that are a part of the first resurrection have no part of the second death. That's an eternal death. That's an eternal separation. You have no part of that if you're a part of this first resurrection. You have a first resurrection of the believers. And then you have this second resurrection of the condemned. It says, and all the rest remain dead until after this period known as the millennium. So you have the first resurrection of the believers. You have the second resurrection of the non-believers. And you have a period of a thousand years separating the two. Separating the two. In which Jesus is going to reign here on earth. We're going to reign with him. The lion and the lamb, the leopard, the wolf, you got it. Okay, look at verse 7. Now when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison. And he'll go out to deceive the nations who are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, whose number is as the sand of the sea. So he is led out to deceive the nations again. Why? Because everyone, even those born and living during the millennial reign of Jesus Christ have to make a choice and choose whom they will serve. And, and, and some folks, sad to say, as perfect as it's going to be in the millennium, when this numbskull is released, are going to pledge their allegiance to him and rebel. And, and he, he will lead them, he will deceive the nations, the four corners, of the, and, and, and as the sand, a lot, sand of the sea. And they, and they went up the breadth of the earth and they surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city, that's Jerusalem. They came to besiege it. And fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. So that battle is over before it begins. They, 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 they surround the camp of the saints, they come to Jerusalem, they try and take it, Done. Fire came down from God out of heaven, devoured them all. And the devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are. So there's three for three. And they will be tormented night and day forever and ever. And then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it, whose face the earth and heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God. This is the judgment of the unbelievers. Now at the end of the thousand-year millennial reign, having to face God at the great white throne judgment. I saw dead, small, great, standing before God. Books were open. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. There's your prayer before you leave this church service. God, make sure add my name to the book of life. The dead were judged according to their works by the things that are written in the books, and the sea gave up the dead who were in it. And death and Hades delivered up the dead that were in them. And they were judged, each one according to his works. Then death 
Death's capitalized there. That's fascinating. Um, death is the result of sin. Romans 6 tells us the wages of sin is death. Death is the result of sin. Death and Hades, Hades is the result of death. Death of the unbeliever. Death because sin got you. And you didn't accept and surrender your sinful life to a Savior that came to set you free. Death is a result of sin. Hades is a result of death. Death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. So, um, there is a, for the believer, there is a second and higher form of life than we've ever known in this world. And it's not just heaven, it's also the millennium, the reign of Jesus Christ here on earth. For the unbeliever, there is a second and, and deeper death than just a physical death, and that is eternal separation from Jesus Christ in hell forever. And so, yeah, again, my prayer for you is simply this. God, I confess my sins and grab a hold of the nail-scarred hand of Jesus and receive him as my Savior and pray that you would add my name to the book of life. Turn the outline over for a second. Let's just roll through this real quick. We'll do it in one minute. Because what I want you to be able to have here is tomorrow's headlines. And not just for you, but for your family and friends and, and, and co-workers, or anyone that right now seriously is heavy on your heart because you're not sure their name is in the book of life. And you ought to take them out for coffee this week and go over this list of tomorrow's headlines. The end times timeline. Just doing my best to help. And if you're like, I, yeah, you know what, they're just, they're, they're too far gone. No one's too far gone. God's arm is not too short that he can't reach down and save. And if you don't have a genuine heart of concern for your family members and, and friends that are lost that are going to spend eternity in hell, listen, I think that's a pretty good indication. Listen, I think it's a pretty good indication you're not saved. Because if you're saved, then you have this compassionate heart in realizing what they're not even aware of yet. That hell is real. Hell is hot. Hell is forever. And the heart of Jesus that now abides in you, if you are a true follower and believer in him, is that no one should perish, but that all would come to a saving knowledge of his love. Come on, church, say amen. We gotta be, this is why we're here. This is what we're about. So, so, so here's the list of what's gonna happen in order. The best way I can put it for you. And the first thing to happen is what? The rapture of the church. That's what's going to happen first. On this list of tomorrow's headlines, the rapture of the church. And that's going to be followed by the arrival of the Antichrist. The moment the church is out of here is the moment the Antichrist is revealed. Can't be revealed until then because the church, the Holy Spirit, through the bride of Christ, the church is restraining that evil from taking over the planet. But the moment we're out of here, that being the rapture, 
well, I don't believe the rapture. I don't even think the rapture's in the Bible. I talked about it last weekend. It's not in the English language, bozo. The Bible wasn't written in the English language. It's written in Greek, and guess what? Harpazo means to be caught up, and it is in the Greek New Testament. So I, I wouldn't be like seriously thinking that this rapture isn't a big deal. It's the next thing to happen on the prophetic time clock. And then the, the Antichrist will arrive. And then the great tribulation. The moment the Antichrist arrives is the moment this earth enters into a seven-year period known as the great tribulation. That's Revelation 6 through 16. And during that, you will see number four, the nations move on Israel. It's already beginning to happen. Russia and Iran, Syria and Lebanon, rockets being fired. It will continue. And these nations will surround Israel, and Israel will realize we have no friends on the planet. Okay? And then what happens? Number five is the abomination, the abomination of desolation. That's when the Antichrist, who is the so-called man of peace, air quotes, this so-called man of peace rips off his mask. Masks will play a definite part in the end times. And the Antichrist will be wearing one, and he'll rip it off and reveal to the world who he really is. Who is he, a man of peace? No, he's Satan. He requires the whole world to bow down and worship him and goes into the temple in Jerusalem, sits on the throne. That's the abomination of desolation. And then is the battle of Armageddon. All those nations that have been surrounding Israel will meet in a valley north of Jerusalem called the Valley of Jezreel. It's in Mark 14, the battle of Armageddon. Guess what? It gets interrupted. Interrupted by what, Bob? Number seven, the second coming. Jesus Christ himself with all of his believing saints on horseback returns to deliver Israel from the nations of the world that have surrounded them. They think they're going down. They think they're on their last breath. They think they're going to lose. And the Lord triumphantly rides in and delivers them to victory. Number eight is the judgment of the nations. Those nations then that turned on Israel are going to be judged right there at the beginning of, of this millennium, this, this, this second coming, the, the judgment of the nations. And then the millennial kingdom begins. The judgment of the nations needs to start first because the only ones who then remain on earth for the millennium, we saw and read together in Revelation chapter 20, are the believers. Those who were who were steadfast in believing through the tribulation, those who died in the tribulation, those that went with the Lord in the rapture, all of those believing folks are the ones who stay for the millennial kingdom, the millennial kingdom, number nine. And then this, this rat face worm of a numbskull gets led out of his bottomless pit. And number 10 is the last battle. He, he will try and gather as many to follow him and turn against the Lord. And sadly, many do in that last battle, which then brings us to the final judgment. And that final judgment is for the non-believer, not for the believer. 
The believer has already been judged and found worthy because they have by faith received what Jesus did for them on the cross. And that ushers in the new creation. So there's a lot of talk about this period known as the millennium. And it pretty much all boils down into three camps. Turn the outline back over with me and let me just quickly give you some things to consider where this period of the millennium is concerned. Now, I think all three camps are made up of believers. I think all three camps are on their way to heaven if they're trusting in Jesus as their Lord and Savior. So they're not like competing against different teams. We're all on the same team. There's just various different opinions of this period known as the millennium or different streams of the same living water of what Christ has done for us, various streams that get us to this point. First of all, there's a pre-millennial position. Fill that in. A pre-millennial position believes that Jesus Christ is going to return. The second coming of Jesus is going to happen pre-millennial, before the millennial reign. Christ comes before the thousand years, returns. This is significant. Uh, It means there's a huge difference in, in this particular camp, in this group of believers. There's a huge difference between the church age Uh, 5G, in, in our overview, 5G, and the kingdom age, 7G. There's a significant difference between those two groupings if you're believing in a premillennial return of, of Jesus Christ. You're believing that there's a significant difference between Israel and the church. Significant difference. A plan for the Gentiles that God has provided through the church and a plan for, for the Jew that God's providing through Israel and that Satan is still very much alive and well and active and still deceiving the nations and will continue to do so until the Lord comes back and deals with him, which then ushers in the millennium, okay? So that's a very popular position And it's a position that I take because it holds the Scripture up in a literal way, in a natural way. What do you mean natural? I mean, it's not literal to the extent where it becomes nonsense, but it's literal in the sense that it's natural. For example, when Jesus says, I am the door, well, I'm not going to take that literally and say, well, yeah, now he's a a door because it says so. No, he is the access. And so I am naturally interpreting what that says in a literal way. That's a pre-millennial position. Very, very famous with the church fathers in the first century. Justin Martyr, um, Polycarp. Gosh, if you've never heard of Polycarp, just Google him this afternoon and look at his life. Irenaeus, and then I gave you some initials of other guys that would hold to a pre-millennial position that Jesus returns to usher in the millennial reign. That would be uh, D.L. Moody, um, C.I. Schofield, the Schofield Bible, if any of you are familiar with that, was a very famous translation of the Bible. Hal Lindsey, right, late great planet Earth, Hal Lindsey, Walter Martin, John MacArthur, Chuck Smith, 
which is Calvary Chapel, that's me, that's us, Tim LaHaye, Billy Graham, DTS, Dallas Theological Seminary, Talbot, Talbot, connected with Biola, all would hold to a premillennial position. Secondly, post, postmillennial, postmillennial. They're believing that Jesus Christ will return when? Following the millennium. In other words, he doesn't usher it in, we do. The church does. And it's the notion or idea that things are getting better and better and better. And it was a very prominent position until World War I and World War II. And, ah, what do we do with Hitler? And the more time that goes on, you kind of begin to scratch your head wondering, are things getting better or do we actually need a reset? But a post-millennial or following or after the millennium would be this idea that Scripture isn't necessarily taken literally or given a natural interpretation. It's more descriptive. It's more substitutionary. What do I mean by that? Well, the church has now replaced Israel in a post-millennial mindset. Replacement theology. Uh, dominion theology. Social gospel many people would call it today. This was famous with the Puritans, and all I'm doing here is just simply giving you my notes. Some of you care about it. Some of you are like, you lost me in half an hour ago, man. Is, um, uh, this, again, very trendy, popular before the world wars came along, but it's still around today. Doug Wilson, and I mention him because we happen to have a classical school, and he's very prominent within classical education. Um, John Hagee would hold to a post-millennial position, a dominion theology, Pat Robertson, the PR right there. All these guys would be right in that camp right there. And then there's an awe-millennial, thirdly, an awe-millennial position. Uh, awe is the reverse of anything. Like if you say someone's moral, we're like, yes. But if we say they're amoral, we're like, oh, no, no. That's, that, the A actually reverses what you were hoping to be moral. So millennial... A millennial says, nah, there isn't a thousand year period. It actually has already been put into place. The thousand years is, is, is very figurative. It's very subjective. It's very symbolic. The millennial reign actually began when Jesus conquered our sins on the cross. And this would be very, very much the mainline denominational approach to the end times more symbolism, more figurative language than taking things literally. This would be Augustine. Augustine wrote a very famous book called The City of God, his most famous book, in which he actually changes his position and becomes millennial. He's like awe in the sense of, no, I don't, think, I don't think it's a period. Calvin believed it. Knox believed it. The Roman Catholic Church, for the most part, espouses to an amillennial position that it's already in place. We're already living in the kingdom age. Can I just say something right now? If this is the millennium, why are we fighting a pandemic? Why is all this election nonsense still going on? Why are we having this enemy Satan that's been thrown into the bottomless pit obviously was given way too long of a leash or a chain or he found a way out if we're actually I had a roommate in college who thought no Bob we're actually living in the are you crazy I'm bald man I'm getting a resurrected body in the millennium I'm having hair don't be looking for bald and yet 
uh, Roman Catholic, you got the Lutherans, you got the Reforms, you got Sprawl, you got Keller, you got people thinking Israel equals the church, you got a lot of people that are espousing to this position. Here's what scares me. Let me just sort of wrap up by kind of narrowing down a myriad of questions that are all revolving around the millennium. And, and, and again, let me just say this. I think all those guys are on Team Jesus. They just come down in different streams or camps as to how this millennial reign goes down. Some of them don't want to take it literally. Some of them want to keep it sort of like symbolic or figurative. So answer to question number one, and, 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 and again, I'm, I'm with you in this. I'm just trying my best like you are to understand it all. Like, I didn't sleep last night. I'm like, who am I to think I'm sitting on a stage telling everybody how it's going to go down? This is just my, my best attempt to help you connect the dots and get excited for the millennial. Like, I, like I, I'm actually wanting to, to, to create in you a serious case of millennial FOMO. Like you now have the fear of missing out on all that awaits for you in the millennium. So let me just hit some questions that are often asked. Is it figurative or is it literal, these thousand years? I would circle the word literal. Why? Because the Bible says it. And I want to be that guy who isn't underlining Scripture with a razor blade. If God said it, that settles it. See, if you begin to pull the rug out and say that the millennium is figurative, it's symbolic, then the period that Satan is thrown into the bottomless pit is figurative. You can't have one without the other, and I don't want that to be symbolic or figurative. I want him to be shut up and thrown in the pit literally. And, and, and so I think it all comes down to one word, church. It comes down to one word inerrancy. Are, are you able to come and surrender your life to the authority of what Scripture declares? Because Scripture declares there will be a thousand-year reign of Jesus Christ here on the earth. And I, I, I want to be the guy, at, at least in your life, that's, that's in, encouraging you more in that direction. And so you're like, okay, so it's literal. Secondly, then what in the world is the purpose of it? Like, why can't we just go to heaven, man? The purpose of the millennium is to fulfill Scripture. The purpose of the millennium is that Jesus not only gets to return, he gets to return and reign in this world the way this world was meant to be operated. It's Eden 2.0. It's the fulfillment of the Lord's prayer. That's why I put that there in your scripture. Matthew chapter 6, verse 10. You know what that passage is? What is it? It's where the disciples come and say, we want to pray like you pray. Teach us how to pray. And Jesus says, okay, when you pray, pray like this. Our Father, come on, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Where? On earth as it is in heaven. The millennium is the fulfillment of scripture and the answer to the Lord's prayer. Thirdly, what do we get to do? We get to reign with Christ. We are on thrones reigning with Christ. Um, I, I think as there are various degrees of punishment where hell is concerned, 
that there are various degrees of blessing where faithfulness is concerned. And, and so the scripture I gave you there is Matthew 25. That's the parable of the talents. And a lot of our faithfulness here will determine what we're privileged to do during the millennium. But ultimately, hey, what we get to do is we get to reign and we get to rule. Saints rule during the millennium, and I don't mean the New Orleans saints. I mean we, the saints of Jesus Christ. Luke chapter 19, 1 Corinthians chapter 6 tells us that. Well, what will the threat level be? It seems to me the threat levels have been eliminated. The wolf ain't the old wolf anymore. The leopard ain't the old leopard anymore. The cobra ain't the old cobra anymore. And the answer to that very famous beauty pageant question, well, if you become the princess of the universe, what would you like? And she says, what does she say? They all say the same thing. Oh, I just want world peace. This is the answer to ultimately that with all of the threats eliminated. Like if you're ever looking for the appropriate time for us to defund the police, it's the millennium. Not now, all hell's breaking loose now. It's in the millennium where the threat levels are eliminated. And in fact, we're told that they take their spears, this is Micah 4, Isaiah 2, and what do they do? They take their spears and, 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 and melt them down into plow, into plowshares. And everyone gets along. And, 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 and there's no war on the planet any longer. Well, okay, no war, but is there death? Number five, is there death during the thousand years? Answer, yes and no. No death for us. We're now in our resurrected, full body of hair, glorified bodies having been delivered from death. But the mortals that survived the tribulation, those that were born during the millennium, according to Isaiah chapter 65, you'll have kids living to 100 years old. But that doesn't mean death is completely eliminated altogether. It seems to me anything leading to death is dead. No disease, no pandemics, no wars. But there are some scriptures that would point to the fact that there is still a natural cause that could bring some people to death during the millennium. But the jury's out on that. It's a, non, it's a non-essential issue, but a lot of people ask the question. And they ask this, number six, who's on the throne? Who's judging on the throne? And I think this, this just might be one of the most important questions. For some of you, you're like, why would you even ask that question? That is the no-brainer. Is it really? Because here's the deal. I've got a lot of people that are like, hey, Bob, everything's good with me and the man upstairs. I mean, we're fine. We're good, man. We're, I'm just not doing the Jesus thing. But me and, and, and God up there, uh, Father Almighty, higher power, we're good. We're golden. We're fine. I'm just not doing the Jesus thing. Okay, um, all fine and well until Jesus happens to drop a little nugget for you in John chapter 5. In John chapter 5, verse 22, it's there on your outline. Look it up later if you, not, if you want, if you're just like interested in it. You know what Jesus says? Here's what he says. <laughs> He's just like, let me just, he says, the Father judges no one. So for someone to think that there's like an end run that they can pull around Jesus and still be on the good graces of the man upstairs, the father judges no one, but he has committed all judgment to his son. 
So you better get straight and better get right with Jesus, who ultimately on the throne will judge and say either well done, good and faithful, or will say, depart from me, I never knew you. That gives me chills down my spine just to say it. That's Jesus reigning preeminently on the throne. So you want to be as close and in touch and relationship with Jesus Christ as you possibly can. Number seven, the the big doozy of them all. If he's bound, why is he loose? Because everyone has a choice. And even the ones born during the millennium are going to have to choose. And sadly, some, even when the world is in a perfected state, with the elimination of threat, will still rebel. Blows my mind. And yet he is released for the very fact that your choice needs to be genuine as to who you're going to believe, who you're going to trust, who you're going to serve. As Joshua said, for me and my house will serve the Lord. I love in in Ephesians 2 there, I put it on your outline, where Paul just sums it all up and he says, here are the three things going against you this week. You got three opposing forces against you this week. Ephesians 2, you know what they are? The world, the flesh, and the devil. Okay, so let's fast forward everything to the millennium. Two of those three have now been dealt with. The world has now been made right. It's been made perfect. It's paradise. And the devil's in the bottomless pit. And still people are rebelling? Because I think of those three, it's our stinking flesh that we have the hardest time bringing under submission and control. And ultimately, Satan knows, and he'll do his best to take as many out and down with him as he possibly can. But he is ultimately released so he can be judged. And he will be judged, according to Scripture, seven times. You have a sevenfold characteristic of the Holy Spirit operating in your life to match up as we began and now as we close with a sevenfold judgment against Satan. He was first judged when he was kicked out of heaven. So I will exalt myself higher than God. You're out of here. He was judged when he was thrown out of heaven. He was judged in the Garden of Eden and told he will crawl on his belly for the rest of his days, and he will lick dust. When he deceived Adam and Eve, he was judged for the second time. Thirdly, he was judged in the wilderness when he couldn't measure up to the Scripture that Jesus continued to defend himself with, with each temptation and attack that Satan brought. He was judged and rendered the loser In his temptations against Jesus in the wilderness, he was judged at the cross. Fourthly, 
He was judged at the cross when Jesus took our place and died for our sins. He was sentenced, and it's almost as if he got out on bail because he seems to be deceiving the nations, but that time will come to an end. When the great tribulation comes, he will be banned from heaven. He will no longer be allowed in to be the accuser of the brethren, and he will be judged and banned to earth. And then he will be thrown into the abyss, into the bottomless pit for a thousand years, judgment number six, and then at the end of the thousand years, he will be released. He'll take as many captive as he possibly can. Don't be duped. Don't fall for it. Stay close to Jesus. Make sure your name is in the book of life because that seventh and final judgment casts him into the lake of fire forever and ever, and our God will reign supremely for eternity. Jesus wins, church. Righteousness triumphs, church. Sin will be judged, and Satan will be destroyed. Amen? Let's stand together. Let's stand. Lord, as we just praise you and thank you for all that you've done for us, by your grace, Lord Jesus, we've been saved. And even as these guys from the Teen Challenge have come to lead us and, and, and join with us in this service, we just ask the blessing of life change and freedom that they have experienced would be experienced by all for whom the sun sets free is free indeed. Maybe we should just close with this. How about you just pray with me this prayer? Put one hand on your heart, church. Just, just join me in putting one hand on your heart and just raise your other hand to heaven. Now let's just not leave this service with any doubt. And just pray with me. Dear God, just pray it out loud. Maybe silently if you want, but maybe out loud. Just proclaim it. Dear God, I'm a sinner. I have fallen so short messed up so many times. I don't deserve your love. I don't deserve heaven. I don't deserve a second chance. But I thank you that your mercy triumphs over judgment. And I thank you for sending Jesus who took my place on the cross. Jesus, I receive you into my life as my Lord and my Savior, my King and my God. Fill me with your Spirit seven times over and defeat the enemy and dry up my appetite for sin because in the best way I know how, I'm giving you my heart surrendering my life, asking you to write my name in the Lamb's book of life. I'm yours. I mean it. I'm all in. From here now and forevermore, in Jesus' name. Amen, church. Amen. Come on, let's sing it together.